All right. Hey, it's good to see you guys. We're in Nehemiah chapter 7, and uh, there are 73 verses in Nehemiah chapter 7, and we are not going to read them all. Some of you already know why. Some of these names will look familiar, and I'll make sure to bring that out in our time this morning. What I want to do is um, read Nehemiah 7. I'll read verses 1 through uh, 6, and then I'll read the last verse of the chapter. Uh, there's this list of names that's inserted right here, and this is not the first time we've seen this list of names. This is the same list of names from Ezra chapter 2, and so we've worked through Ezra already, so um, I don't need to reread them for you, but they do fit um, in a thematic way. Nehemiah is being really intentional about putting this list there, so I'll make sure to unpack that later. Nehemiah 7, verses 1 through 6, and I'll read verse 73. Now, when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in the front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been yet rebuilt. And then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found it written. Let's go over to verse 73. And so the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all of Israel, they lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Let me pray for us. Amen. Our Father, we bow before you now and ask you to be our teacher. Your word is alive. It's active. It's sharp that it gives wisdom to the fool, that it provides light for dark paths. Father, we don't come to you professing to be know-it-alls. We come to you admitting our own weakness and our own blindness. And we're thankful that as we approach your word with humility, you promise to uh, meet, it, meet us and to train us in righteousness. I do pray that you would give us faith that we might believe and receive your word, that it might be implanted in our hearts and that it would bear much fruit. Speak through me, your servant, and forgive me of my own sins. May we all come to the throne of grace together right now for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the score was 89 to 71, and there was about seven seconds left. And um, Washington struggled to get the ball in, and finally... They were, they were able to get an inlet pass into John Wall, and he made the game-winning shot. And the Washington Wizards ended up beating the Boston Celtics 92-91. to And after that shot, uh, John Wall got on the scores table, and he jumped and pumped his fist, and he started posting a lot of stuff on social media about the victory. And it was a really good victory. But some of the old heads in the NBA, some of the veterans, you know, they looked upon that with 
disdain because they knew that he had only won game six and that there was a game seven and they were going back to Boston. And so in one sense, that was a really, really exciting victory. But on the other hand, more sober-minded veterans, they know that you don't celebrate until you close the series out. There was more work to do. There was still more work to do and they ended up losing. I mentioned that because I think that's a really good way to understand we're at a transition point in Nehemiah, where on the one hand, if you were with us last week, we talked about persevering through opposition. And I made the case to you that there is a theme in Ezra and Nehemiah where God's people, they persevere even through opposition, that that wall that they sent Ballad and Tobiah and Geshem did not want to be built. They built it, Nehemiah says it in, in, in Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15, that the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And so when Nehemiah seven begins, it's beginning with this idea that man, we just had a major victory. We just finished the wall. Well, finishing the wall is like winning game six of a seven game series. There's still more work to do. It's not done. And what's about to happen here is the rest of Nehemiah, if I could split it up in two halves, Nehemiah 1 through 6 is about getting this city and getting this wall rebuilt. Nehemiah 7 through the end, it's about getting God's people inside of the city. And so this whole theme of the city of God, at first it was all about the wall. It was all about the wall. It was all about the wall. And now the wall is about to start receding in the background. And it's going to be about the city. And so what we're going to get in these next several chapters, we're going to get these, these images of what is the city of God like? And what does God want for the city? And we're going to see it even the next time we're in Nehemiah, that it's not haphazard that after they do this, that there's the law, that in the city of God, the law of God matters. And so what we're going to see is that they're completing this wall. There's more work. And I think we can learn a lot about the city. So here's what I'm going to do this morning that's normally different. I'm going to wait and tie in all the application at the end. I want to do a really good job at sort of unpacking this text in its context. And then at the end, I'm going to apply it three ways. So here's the first thing um, that we see is that when they finished the wall, that there was more work. And that work had to do with this idea that the city was still empty. And if you, if you notice, I mean, I mean, read it. Read, read chapter 6, verse 15. The wall was finished on the 25th day. Now, go over to seven, chapter, four, I mean, chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had yet been rebuilt. And so why had no houses been rebuilt? Look at the end of chapter seven, the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And so what we think is happening here is they finished the wall in the sixth month. And then after that, there's just this, hey, it's time to go back home. It's time to go back to our homes. And that's why you see in verse uh, four, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had yet been rebuilt. And so th th he, have you ever been so locked into 
what you're doing that you fail to see the big picture? And I think that's what's happening here. That for the people of Israel, it was all about, let's go build a wall, let's go build a wall, let's go build a wall. And what they, have, what they are forgetting is that God is a form and function type of God. Like, I'm just not working you to work you, that I have a bigger picture in mind with you building the wall. So I don't know if you, if you ever watch um, Karate Kid, right? I, that was one of my favorite movies growing up, right? Mr. Miyagi and Daniel's son. How many have seen it? Raise your hand. All right, so, man, that's a lot. So, hey, that's good. There's this, there's this, there's this scene, right, when Daniel's son comes to Mr. Mr. Miyagi. So Daniel's son's raised by a single mother. They're moving around. He's getting bullied. And he finally comes to Mr. Miyagi and says, hey, can you teach me karate? And Mr. Miyagi's like, I will teach you and you will learn. And so he comes back the next day and Mr. Miyagi has him, he comes to show up ready to learn karate and he gives him a sand, uh, some sanding mitts. And he makes him get on the ground and sand the wood deck. And so he's sanding this wood deck for days. He finishes that and he comes back the next time. And then he gives him a paintbrush and he starts to paint, paint this, this, this uh, fence. And he's up and down, up and down, up and down. And he says, okay, I'm done, I'm done. He says, no, you're not. You got to do the rest of it. And so he's like, oh, man. He comes back a third day. And now Mr. Miyagi is like, hey, I need you to wash and wax my cars. And so they're like, why am I washing and waxing cars? And so Daniel gets in there and tries to wax. He says, no, 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 no. Wax on. And what's the other part? Wax off. See, you got it. And so he has to teach him, like, how to wash and wax a car. And so finally he comes back another time thinking he's about to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi gives him another paintbrush. And now he's painting not a, not a, not a fence up and down. He's not sanding the floor. He's not washing. Now he's painting side to side a house. And by this point, Daniel has had enough. Mr. Miyagi gets his fishing, pot, fishing rod. He's about to go off and go fishing. And Daniel's like, no, you're not. You are not going to sit here and make me slave for you day after day after day. You said you were going to teach me karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, I am. He says, no, you're not. No, you're not. And finally, he says, okay, my son, put, put the brush down, right? And he throws a punch at him, and he throws the punch at him, and he tells him, wax on. Then he throws another punch, wax off. Then he kicks him low. And, he, and so what, what happened was Daniel got so caught up in the work, in doing the work and slaving, that he did not see that his teacher was up to something so much bigger than he could see, that he got frustrated, that he could not see the big picture. Mr. Miyagi was doing something bigger than Daniel could see. And everything Daniel was doing was for Daniel's good. He could not see it in the moment because he was so close on the work. The case that I'm making to you is that this is kind of this is one of the moments that you see in this book. They are so in on the wall and getting it fixed and getting it up and serving and serving and working and working that when they finish, they think that it's about the wall. And God is like, no, it's not just about the wall. There's a city that you're building, and guess what? I want people inside of it. You see how that works? They're working, and they think that God is just here to work us. And he's saying, no, I'm not here just to work you. I'm doing something bigger than you. The work that you're doing, it's actually a part of something bigger that you can't see. And here's what you can't see. God doesn't just want a city to have a city. 
He doesn't just want a wall around the city. He doesn't just want them to work and obey him. Here is what he's saying. I want a city built because I want it to be full of people. And that's what you see even in the beginning of Genesis. God tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill. Baby, when I look at the earth, I want to see billions of image makers, image bearers, that there is this fullness too. And so what's happening is they've been sent out of the land into judgment. Now they've come back into the land to rebuild. And you know what God is saying? It's time to hit a restart. Start back over. Let's fill this place up and let's go out. And so this whole idea that God wants to build this city, this city that's full of people. They didn't see it, right? That's a problem. It's a big, full, I mean, big city that's empty. And God wants it full. Now, the second question is, who does he want in his city? And why does he want that? Who does he want in it and why? Well, it's obvious from our passage that he wants the same people who've been working. He wants his people who have embraced him by faith to enter into his city and to live. That, 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 that's what he's after, wanting them to partake of the fruit of their labor. You built the wall. Now, I want you, not, not everybody else. I want you. I want you, my covenant people dwelling in my city where my name is. I want you here. Of all the people on the earth, I want you. This is your unique and special place carved out for you. That's what he wants. He wants his people in his city and that's why, if you read the way it reads from verse 4 to verse 5, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And look at verse 5, and then, right there, then, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by, gene by genealogy. You know what that's cold word for? That's cold word for we got this big city that's empty and I don't know what to do. And then God puts it into my heart. God himself tells me, here's what you do, Nehemiah. You start enrolling people and getting people to move back in. Now, why would they need to move back in? Because you go to the end of verse 73 and it says the seventh month had come. The people were in their town. So they finished the work in the sixth month and they leave. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you back right here. And what we're going to see over the next several chapters, God's going to repopulate the city. Now, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11, just so that you see that I'm not making this up. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Look at, just look at verses 1 and 2. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in their towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so there, that's the movement right there, the movement from the completion of the wall. God is on this agenda to get the people. Don't go out there and stay out there. 
come back here and live in my city, populate my city. So Nehemiah starts that right here. He starts to go back and say, well, who's Israel? And who deserves to live here? And who is our people? And as he starts to do this genealogy to get people to come back in, he finds Ezra chapter 2. And so notice, look, look at the beautiful scene. That the Lord put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, to be enrolled by genealogy. And then I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found it written. And so what happens here is if you were to take Nehemiah 7, verses 6, all the way through verse 73, and go back to Ezra chapter 2, guess what? It's 98% the same. Now, I'll give you a few examples. So if you got Ezra chapter 2, hold that in your Bibles. I want to make sure we kind of go back. So find Ezra chapter 2, hold it there. Now, I'm just going to do a, a, a few quick, let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 8 of, of, of Nehemiah 7. The sons of Parash, 2,172. Now, turn back over to Ezra chapter 2, verse 3. The sons of Parash, 2,172. All right, look at Nehemiah 7, verse 39. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. Now, turn back over to Ezra 2.36. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. We could do this all day, I promise you. And we could go verse by verse going back from Nehemiah 7 to Ezra, 2, Ezra chapter 2, and about 98% of everything you see will be the same. There's some numbers that are off a little bit, which we think are scribal errors when writing it. But here's the point. Here's what Nehemiah is doing. He goes to try to figure out why are no people in the city. And he's coming up with this plan to get God's people to move back in by genealogy. And then he finds Ezra chapter 2 and says, wait a minute. This is important. Because when you look at the end of Nehemiah 7, which is also the end of Ezra chapter 2, you want to know how many people came the first time? Look at verse, uh, Nehemiah 7, verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360. So you get this image, right? Nehemiah finds this genealogy of everybody who came, 42,000 to 52,000 strong, and now the city is built and there are no houses in it. He's like, wait a minute, how can this be? How can we come back 42,000 strong and there are no houses in Jerusalem? And the big city that we built is empty? This cannot be. And so he gets on this mission to get God's people who did God's work back in God's city. That's who he wants in the city. That's his agenda here, right? Now, the question is why? Why does he want his people who've done this work dwelling in his own city. If you've ever done a short-term mission trip, then you, you might, this might help you relate to what's going on here. And I've done a several. When, when I was at Jackson State, we'd always take students to spring break or summer conference, you name it. And, and those weeks are really good weeks, right? You go and we're going to go to Huntsville, for example, and we're going to do tutoring. We're going to work at a clinic. It's going to be a definite start date, a definite stop date. You go and you work with some people and you fight and you fuss and you learn people's names and you remember people's personalities and you walk away, Lord willing, having done some good there. But then you know these people way better than you knew them. Right. And so it's always bittersweet. Right. The, 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 the sweet part is we've done something. 
that matters. The bitter part of it is we probably won't get to work together again. That we're going to return and go in our separate ways. And that stings a little bit. God's people have gotten together to work on this wall and it's taken them 52 days to do it. And now that it's over, what next? God says, no, I don't want you to go back to your separate homes. I don't want you to spread out. I don't want this to be a project or a, a bill of memories. I have something better and what's better is real community. God wants them to stay. And that's why you he, he's after them building houses. That's a really big deal because I think to have community, you need at least three things. The first thing you need is proximity. Uh, you need to be near each other. The second thing you're going to need is protection. And you're going to have to have this ethical code that tells me what's offensive and what's not. How do I love you? That, that, in, that in that sense, here's what God is after. I don't want you just to work together. I want you to come back and live near each other. I want you to live near one another, build houses. And so that's, that's the point. That's what God is getting at. I don't want you scattered. I want you near. I want you near one another. I want you in the close proximity with one another. And this is why God is pushing community. I know we think that community is had by the number of followers we have on social media, right? That's, that's a facade. It, it's not real. That the community that God is building is a community that transcends me working with you together on a project and going our separate ways. He says, no, I want you to build a house and I want you to build a house next door and I want you to build a house next door and I want you to build a house next door. And guess what? When you run out of eggs, you just run next door and get some eggs, right? That's how we grew up, right? We grew up where, man, we couldn't make it to the grocery store. Man, Trey Mama got some eggs. I'll get some milk from Trey Mama, right? Like, really? <laughs> or, I mean, really, my parents at work and we run out of stuff. You just go next door across the street. That if, we, if my mom tells us that you cannot have company and my neighbor sees that we got folks running in in the house, my mama going to get a call at work, right? That is neighboring, right? This is what God envisions. We're not just going to work on a service project together. I want you to, your kids to play together. I want you to have wine together if that's your thing. I want you to walk your neighborhood with your dogs and to talk to one another. I want when, when things are hard and you have to travel for three weeks at a time on business, I want your wife and kids to feel safe because the man across the street will step up and mow the yard and will keep a watch on your house. Like these, this is the type of community that God is talking about. Get in the neighborhood and build houses next to one another. Don't just work and don't just worship together. Do life together. Proximity, you have to have this. This is what God is pushing when he tells them, don't get scattered, come back in this city, in this city, and build houses. Proximity is what God is after. The other thing God is after is protection. See, that community fails. If, if you can't, if I can't be safe, that community can't thrive. There's a report that was done by CNN, and it's called the Disappearing Front Porch. And this particular report looked at the gun violence in Chicago and the effect it's had on the front porch of people's homes. And there was a time when the front porch or your front yard, it was considered a safe space. 
And what they've done is they've, they've, they, they notice that when you drive through parts of Chicago, there are no kids outside. There, 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 people aren't sitting on porches anymore. And here's why. Of the 8,000 murders in Chicago in the past 15 years, almost 2,000 of them, you know where it happened? On the front porch. Or the bullets coming in the house. Or when kids are in their front yard playing and they're hit by stray bullets. And so all of a sudden, what's happening, this used to be safety. This was a safe place on my porch, minding no business. And all of a sudden, this place that should have been safe, it's not safe. And so you want to know what's happening? There are no big wheels out in some streets. That we do fire drills when, to, to get our kids so that they know what to do when the fires come. But there in some parts of Chicago, they, they do gun drills, right? That you have to teach your kids when you hear what sounds like a firecracker, you hit the ground right then and right there. That is their reality. And you know what's happening? It's eroding community. That neighbors can't neighbor, that they can't relate. Their kids aren't playing and being kids. Protection, the lack of it or the lack of safety, it erodes community. And that is precisely why. You know what Nehemiah does? Look, look at verse, verses one through four. Now, when the wall had been built and I set the doors up and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over all of Jerusalem, for he was more faithful, God-fearing than many. So the first thing Nehemiah does is he appoints two dudes. I need you to take the north and I need you to take the south. We have to protect this city. Now look at what it says. Look at, look at verse 3. And I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in the front of their own homes. You see what Nehemiah is doing. I want you to be here in community, in houses next to each other. And the second thing I need to do, I need to make sure that you're safe. I'm going to have dudes on the wall. Nobody's coming in and nobody's going out. And you've seen this theme already in Nehemiah. Where Sanballat wanted to kill Nehemiah. Geshem wanted to kill Nehemiah. Tobiah, Tobiah wanted to kill Nehemiah. The people have to build a wall with a weapon in one hand and they're working with the other. This is the hostility against God's people. And Nehemiah says, we're going to build a wall and I'm going to put men on the front and we're going to protect the city so that God's people can be safe. That's why he's doing this. It's safety. Community thrives when there is safety. The third thing you see is that community thrives when there is a, an agreed upon ethical code. How do I know what's offensive? How do I know what you expect of me? What can I expect of you? That these things, they are at the fabric of community, whether we think about it or not, it is at the fabric of community. And guess what? You don't have to be middle class or educated to have an ethical code. It is there. And so I was not a Christian my entire life, as was none of us, right? We aren't born here Christian, right? Well, maybe, but I, anyway. <laughs> but, I mean, back in the day, I used to listen to Scarface and Ghetto Boys and Juvenile and Young Jeezy. And, and here's the thing, Biggie, and some of y'all might know Biggie. Well, here's the thing, whether you know it or not, the streets have what they call the G-code, Right? Juvenile has a song called the G-Code. 
Ghetto Boys, they have a song called The G-Code. Young Jeezy has a song called The G-Code. This is the code of the streets. Now, it may not be intact and it may not look like our code of ethics, but it is a code of ethics. And so Biggie comes out with this song. I'm not going to tell you the title of it, but listen to what he says, right? He says, I've been in this game for years, and it made me an animal. It's rules to this, so I wrote me a manual, a step-by-step booklet for you to get. Rule one, never let no one know how much dough you hold because the cheddar breed jealousy. Rule number two, let them, let, let them, never let them know your next move. Don't you know bad boys move in silence? If not, then violence. Take this from your highness. And so here is Biggie. He has his whole song, his whole song on the code to the streets. This is if you're going to live in the streets, young dude. This is how you have to move. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. It's a code of ethics. Ethics, is, they're a part of community. They tell me how to relate and how to survive. Here's a case that I want to make to you. You already studied Nehemiah chapter 6 with me. And you already saw some of the ethical impulses that come out of it. When the famine came, you want to know why Nehemiah was so upset at Israel? You are violating the ethical code of God. You don't tax the poor in a famine. You don't make a woman sell her children to you in a famine. You don't let them mortgage their houses to you in a famine so that you, Mr. Rich Guy, who owns all the land, can keep getting richer and richer and richer and richer while this woman over here is getting poorer and poorer and poorer. You are violating the code of God outside, outside of this city, outside of this wall. It might be dog-eat-dog dog world. It might be you are your own boss, but not inside the kingdom of God. Inside of this wall, inside of this city, we care for the poor. Inside of this city, when we have excess, we share. You see what Nehemiah is doing? He is showing us this ethical code that will stabilize community, the community of Israel. And so we know, right, we know, right, God has given this to us in the second table of the Ten Commandments. You want to know what it's like to love your neighbor. Don't sleep with his wife. You want to know what it's like to love your neighbor. Do whatever you can to protect their life. You want to know what it's like to love your neighbor. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Be content with what you have. You want to know what it means to love your neighbor. Speak the truth in love. You want to know what it means to love your neighbor. Honor your parents and your grandparents and everyone in authority. God has given his people this ethical code that's, that's coming out of Nehemiah. God wants his people in his city, dwelling safely, living near one another, under his oversight. That is his plan. And that's what he's after. I want you back here. This is the city that he's envisioning. Reason number one, that he wants them in the city so that they can be near each other. Reason number two, because he wants to be near them. If you've been with us, then you know the way this book, these two books have been laid out. When they got back, the first thing they built was not their own homes. When they got back, the first thing they built in the city 
was the altar. The second thing they built in the city was the temple. The third thing they built in the city was the wall. And the fourth thing they're going to build is going to be themselves and their homes. But notice what the first thing was. You can tell a whole lot about the city and what is at the center of a city by what we develop first. What's going to be the most important thing in a city? It's the first thing. And if it's big, flashy homes, then your homes will be what your city is about. If it's a shopping mall and a shopping strip, then the shopping will be what the city is about. And it's hard to go back and undo that. But if you have us at the city, at the center of a city, the temple is first. You know what that says? The worship of the Lord is first. Before we build our own houses, we build his house. We will dwell in tents. He will have a house. He will be at the center of our city and therefore at the center of our lives. That's the plan. And so when the priests offer sacrifices, when the people come to the temple, all of this is because God wants to be near them. That God has chosen to let his glory dwell for some reason in some way beyond our comprehension. Jerusalem was this unique place where the Lord says, my glory will dwell there. And wherever you live, you will come there. Right. And so God is saying, I'm going to be here. And guess what? I want you here, too. I want you near me. I want you close to me. I want you close to me. Come near, come in. And that has been God's mission from the beginning of the world. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was God was walking with them in the cool of the day. Think about the image. The creator and sustainer of the world walks around the garden with his people. That what you get in the whole unpacking of the Bible is this God who will not let his people go astray. I will find you. I will sort you and I will get you and I will bring you home. I will send my son, Emmanuel, God with us. Right. Think about that, that in our sin and weakness, God says, I'm going to show up from above and I'm going to come down. I want to be near. Think about what, what it says. In, uh, I think it's Colossians that Christ in us. You see that? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Like God is this God who wants to press in and be near. And so when he talks about building this city with the temple first and your houses second, don't just look at it from what my perspective. Look at it from his perspective. He wants you in this city because he's there. And he wants to be near you. Now, Pastor L, what does all of this have to do with us this morning? I got three points and I'm going to sit down, as, as the old folks used to say, right? First thing, what does this mean for us? That God loves cities, and so should we. Now, I'm not, my wife is from a really small town. I'm not saying that he doesn't love towns. He, he loves them, right? Just really small town. You, you cannot find it on a map. One stoplight. It used to have a gas station. It's closed now. <laughs> but he loves cities. And if your attitude towards Jackson is that it's going to a hell in a handbasket, you need to repent of that. I know the city's broken. I live here. 
and we've chosen to live here. And I know the roads are bad, right? And I know crime is rampant, right? Have you watched the news? One of our own members has a shop and right next door to him, a guy was shot 11 times on Friday. Yesterday, we found, or they found, a decapitated person. And I know our temptation is to think that they just gotta get it together, that, that, that man to hell with Jackson. And I'm saying, man, our God loves the city. And all of its brokenness, he loves it. When you read Jonah, you hear what he says to Jonah as Jonah ends? He says, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and so much cattle? That is the way that the book of Jonah ends. This city that Jonah does not want to go to, that does not know him, God says, I love them and I have something in store for them. He loves the city. Have you ever, have you read the New Testament? Don't you know that almost every single book that's not a gospel is named after a city, a church in a city? That Ephesus was a real city where a church was in it, right? Colossae was a real city. Philippi was a real city. When, when, when Paul leaves Titus, he says, go back to Crete, a real city, and put things in order. That when, I mean, Thessalonica was a real city. You read Revelation verses chapters 1 through 3. Paul's, I mean, John is writing these letters to the churches who are in real cities. And even Pergamum, it says, you, your church, is where the throne of Satan dwells. It's like, what in the world is that, Right? And yet, it's not the hell in a handbasket. I'm working. And that's why it's so important, Redeemer, for our mission statement right here. If you have your bulletins right there, look on the very first page. We are a community church for the city, for it, for its good. So you get out and you vote, right? And you get out and we go to neighborhood meetings, right? And we get out and we care about education in this city, right? And we care about safety, right? I mean, we care about justice. We care about these things because God cares about these things. What's the type of city that God desires? Safe, community, ethically accountable to him. And so it is perfectly right for us as a church to care deeply and engage this city. And if you don't live in Jackson, guess what? You are dual affiliated, right? You care about where you live, wherever that is. And you care about where your church is, wherever that is. That's not me, that's the Lord. So we buy homes back here. We have single mothers paying 900 bucks a month for rent. And we can buy a home and volunteer with you and fix it up and she can own her own house and she can pay 350 a month and she owns it. You talk about issues of justice and righteousness. 
But here's the thing, that you can't just do deed ministry. There has to be word ministry. And so that's why when you come to VBS, we're going to do skits, we're going to play games, we're going to do crafts, and somebody's going to talk about Jesus every single night. We'll sell you a house and make no money off of it, and we're going to talk about Jesus while we do it. You see, Jesus is after changing the heart, right? Not just giving you the best life now, but I want to change your heart. And the only way that's changed is when the gospel comes right in here. And so we got this two-pronged approach, deeds, 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 and we got some word coming with it every single time. Right? That's how we love this city. The city does not ultimately need bigger houses and better houses. It ultimately needs Jesus. We love the city and we're for it. The second thing, we are the city. Have you ever thought about that? Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world and you all are the city on a hill. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jerusalem was on this hill and so Jesus comes back later and you know what he says? Guess what, church? You're the city of God. It's you. It's in you. I have done something in you and through you and through me where I have reconciled you and you and you and you and you to me and to each other. Don't just show up and worship together and leave your family, your city, right? Don't just show up and do projects together, life on life type of stuff. That is what is ours in Christ. And so that's why we have growth groups where you can get plugged in. That's why we have mom studies where you can come. That's why we have men's groups where you can go and have lunch. And there's so much more that's happening. We are wanting to program community. And here's the thing. You can't always program it. And therefore... You don't have to depend on just what we say we're doing. Man, this is your family. Look around the room right now. Look around right now. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. You can go to games together. You can pray for one another and with one another. You can work out together. Zach and Deshaun, I think they worked out together this week and Zach was Hurting pretty bad. Deshaun put it on him. But keep doing that, right? That's the invitation, Christian. It's we're family. We are the city of God, loving each other in this way. We are salt and light of the world. When they look at it and see our love, it is powerful. Last thing, and we long for the eternal city. We are the city. We love the city. But there's another city that's coming. And notice what John says about the city that he sees. That I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and its radiance was like the most rare jewel, and it had a great high wall. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives light. By its light the nations will walk. 
and they will bring into the glory and honor of the nations and nothing unclean will ever into it, no, enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see how Nehemiah 7 fits perfectly with the way the Bible ends? Nehemiah has this list of names and you get to the end of the book of the Bible. Oh, it's a list of names. Nehemiah has this big wall that they built and John City has a wall around it. In Nehemiah, he has men standing guard in the new heaven. You don't need men to stand guard, right? That, 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 that's the beauty. The, the sun never goes down because the sun never comes up because there is no sun. And, and the, the, the glory of the Lord shines and lightens up this city. And so Nehemiah is worried about when you open the gates and close the gates. And John says, buddy, the gates, they always open. Because the Lamb Almighty protects this city and nothing defiled will ever come in it. Think about that. That is ours, that, that when we live in this life, it hurts and it aches and it's hard and we cry and there are murders and we get robbed and we get cancer. There is so much bad stuff that's happening. And Jesus says, you just wait. I have a city that I have built for you that nothing will ever, ever, ever be able to attack you or harm you and I don't need to put men on gates because I'm watching my city and anything that is undefiled that does not deserve to be in it cannot get in because I am throwing them into the lake of fire do you see how history ends history